Welcome to the Leah Andrews Show. I'm here with David King, author, lecturer, and activist. He is the garden master of the Learning Garden and the founding chair of the Los Angeles Seed Library. And he is also my botany professor when I was in acupuncture school. So he's a very special person to me. Um, welcome to our show. I'm so happy that you're doing this with me. Um, and so for me, one of the biggest things that I want to talk to you about, there's a lot of things that you have brought into my life, but this whole idea of the GMO debate. Um, I personally have been hearing a lot about how GMOs are wonderful, they're saving the children, and it's natural. We've always been playing with plant genes and, and making them into what we want them to be. So why are GMOs not a good idea for the world? So first of all, thank you for inviting me. Mm -hmm. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, when it comes to GMOs, they're not necessarily to feed the world. There's just nothing. We don't need them. Um, let's get that out of the way first. Okay. Um, secondly, it is not the way breeding has been done for thousands of years, as they would have you believe. Um, there is, when you're doing uh, a lot of the GMOs, most of the GMOs, GMOs, the only reason to make a GMO is so that a certain company can sell more pesticides or herbicides or not that. It has nothing to do with feeding the world or feeding people at all. It is sales mechanism. GMOs then are built by shooting a gene from a totally different kingdom, like from the animal kingdom, the insect kingdom, into a member of the plant kingdom. That would never, ever, ever happen unless you had this invasive technique used in a laboratory. And so it is not similar at all to the previous breeding techniques. It is a totally different animal. And they say, uh, on one hand, they would say, well, it's just like everything else, and we deserve a patent because it's so unique. Mm -hmm. They're talking on two sides of the mouth. Okay. Let's just back up for a second and look at the end result. If we go down this road of using GMOs and chemicals to feed ourselves, mm -hmm. what they're doing is chemicals into the ground mm -hmm. that goes into the groundwater that becomes a part of a, of a, part of a problem, mm -hmm. a pest, um, a, a toxic, toxicity problem. Mm -hmm. Um, they kill off organisms in the ground that are actually the true uh, creators of fertility in the soil. Uh, you have, when you do all this spraying, you end up with a dead soil. You don't end up with living soil. So why, why are there more chemicals used in GMO crops than in regular crops? Well, the, I, the whole formulation is an attitude of we have to fight nature. Uh -huh. We have to beat nature up, right? And, and so there, there's constantly, um, for example, the reason for Roundup Ready soybeans or Roundup Ready corn is that, that, that the plants themselves are bred to resist the action of Roundup, but all the other weeds are not, right? The weeds are not. Well, the weeds are changing and becoming impervious. And so, first of all, they, they are using Roundup. So, no weeds. It's wonderful. Okay. Now they're still using Roundup, and suddenly some weeds are resistant to Roundup, or they're not dying as easily. So they, they go to the FDA and they ask for permission to double the amount of Roundup that can be in the vegetable. Okay. Okay? So now they're spraying double the amount. Now weeds start showing up that are resistant to the double the amount. So what do they do? They go back and they say, well, we would like to have Agent Orange approved. 
right, as the, as the way to kill off the weeds. Mm -hmm. The end result is always going to be more pesticides, more insecticides, or more powerful insecticides, more, you know, that are stronger and used in ever greater proportions. Okay. You already have dead soil just from the amount of uh, poisons we're putting down already. Now let me ask you this. I mean, do you think it's wise to be eating food that is doused in pesticides from day one? <laughs> Not personally. Yeah, right. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and in fact, most people, if they, if you ask them that question, if they post in this in this manner, they say, no, 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 I don't want that. Right. And they don't want that. And that's one reason why many of us want to have labeling on GMOs. Right. So, um, I think the thing here is that if you just look at it on down the line, and if you actually, actually, if you take anything that they say mm -hmm. that is about their product being good, you take the opposite of that, and that's the truth. Okay. So, no, they're going to starve the world. That's the truth. Okay. You cannot have a successful food production if you're spraying that much poison. Okay. You just can't do it. So, I mean, here at the at the Learning Garden, we actually zero pesticides, and we don't have pest problems. Mm -hmm. And we, well, use, we have a wonderful hunter. We have a wonderful yes. hunter. Well, that's yes. the one pest we do have. Okay. I haven't figured out yet. <laughs> we, we do have rodents. Uh, but we and, and out there in the garden we don't have rodents because okay. there's a hawk oh. that lives out in that big uh, Chinese elm tree. Okay. Uh, so that takes care of it out there. But in the buildings and the areas over here where the hawk can't really get into, mm -hmm. I, I think I surprised me. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one reason why if you go into my office, all my uh, seeds are in glass jars and metal lids. Yeah. Right. Unless well, we need a cat. I do need a cat, and he would love to have a cat. Pets. He's very friendly with cats. Oh, okay. Yeah, he would love to play with cats. Okay. He wants me to play with them all the time. Okay. Uh, and he has, uh, he has taken care of a mouse or two. In okay. His oh. Yeah, they almost have to leap into his mouth. But. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, but you recently had a kind of a little mini battle with the city of Los Angeles. I didn't feel like a mini, a mini battle. No. I felt pretty beat up. Okay, we're going to Yeah, we, we, um, Put forward a motion to have Los Angeles be declared a GMO-free zone. Okay. The idea there was not to ban the food GMOs or like that because we really can't do that. But the idea was we could make this an area where you couldn't grow GMO plants. Okay. The idea behind that was to preserve our plants from getting mixed in with GMOs. Okay, isn't that then that is something? when you have GMO crops, there really is no safe zone for keeping them even contaminated. Right. They was uh, uh, five miles that it would contaminate, and now it's 25 miles, and there's even been one report suggesting that corn pollen can be viable up to 500 miles, which would just put the kibosh on everything. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things, for instance, we are doing here with corn especially, corn is wind pollinated. Okay. And that's what makes it so difficult because the, the pollen gets in the wind and it carries for X number of miles. Mm -hmm. And if it gets into your corn, then it's just like human beings. You're, you're, the, pro you're the product of your mother and your father. Half your genes come from mom and half the genes come from father. Same thing is true for corn. Half that comes from the male, half that comes from the female. So you then end up with a corn that is GMO. Now, if you, if, let's say, for example, that this, that this was a heritage corn. You, you know, you, you uh, for some reason you had this corn that was uh, really quite rare, old, ancient variety corn. It's lost now, right? That revered line is lost on your corn because your corn are GMO. 
Furthermore, if uh, the company that created that GMO finds out you have that GMO mm -hmm. in your corn, right. your crop is their property. Right. So uh, it's just a heinous, a heinous system that uh, that hurts the garden, hurts the farmer. Mm -hmm. And I think once we get some real research, you know, we've not had any real research. They'll take this is the most research product on American shelves. Uh -huh. Yes, it is. It's the most research product on American shelves, but it's been researched paid for by Monsanto. Right, and if you've ever worked in the research, um, you know that science is corruptible mm -hmm. when uh, someone is funding mm -hmm. your project. So, yes. Yeah. So there's not been a lot of research, any level, mm, uh, nonpartisan research mm -hmm. done on these GMOs as well. So, and I think that that, I don't, I don't trust, well the big player in the field is Monsanto. Mm -hmm. And I don't trust them because they act, you know, they came out with DDT. Mm -hmm. You know, and there, I actually just came across a, a copy of an ad from the early 60s, I think it was. This says DDT is good for me and the whole farmyard and <laughs> okay. everybody's singing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they told us DDT was safe. They told us the PCBs were safe, uh -huh. right? They also invented PCBs. Okay. And now they're trying to tell us that uh, Agent, then half of Agent Orange is safe. Yeah. And, and their track record, if they say GMOs are safe, it doesn't thrill me. Right. I don't buy it, and I never have bought it. And I think that on down the line, first of all, farmers are noticing already that they're not getting the, the yields promised from, from GMOs, so they're not going to feed the world. They'll starve the world, but they won't feed the world. So, so what can the average person do? Because I think it's really easy to get feel overwhelmed and, oh, I can't do anything, there's these big corporations doing whatever they want to do. What can the average person do to kind of also, like, to choose for themselves non-GMO mm. foods? By organic. Okay. Honestly, that's the that so far is the way to do it. Okay, so all organic foods are going to be GMO free for the most part, as far as they can be. As far as they can be, uh, and I will say that if you're really concerned, um, I understand that uh, white corn is less susceptible to uh, GMO pollen. Okay, I how that happened, I don't know. But I had it on. I have a, a good, uh, good, a good source on that, and also uh, popcorn is not GMO. So okay. there you go. Shout out to popcorn. There, Although yeah. it's hard to eat the kernels off the popcorn. Right. right? <laughs> and so, and if they want to become more politically active in this movement, you, if you're in the LA area, right. the the, um, the seed uh, library in Los Angeles is a great place to to start. It's a good place to start. The library itself didn't sponsor the. Uh, the motion, but they certainly supported it, you know, and it just so happened that uh, I'm one of the leaders of the of the motion, and I'm also the chair of the C library, so it kind of looks like it's a C library uh -huh. thing, but it's not a C library thing. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, this, but the C library of Los Angeles does have a part to play in that, because we really did want, we do want to make sure that our crops are not polluted with uh, GMO pollen. Um, and I think, in fact, the founding of the, of the Sea Library uh, was uh, occurred right after the uh, Obama administration um, approved um, sugar beets. Okay. Because sugar beet pollen, for, beets are another wind pollinated plant, mm -hmm. and beet uh, pollen is much more. Uh, there's much more of it. Mm -hmm. It's smaller and lighter than corn pollen, mm -hmm. so it probably can travel farther, right? But there's no research on it, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just postulating at this right. moment. Right. At that point, they have the um, 
the audacity to approve sugar beets when they will cross with not only your beets, but chard as well. And so, and so then you've got the GMO critter, <laughs> as it were, in, in, your, in all that, in your beets or your, or your chard. And I just, I just don't. As a seed saver, somebody who believes in saving seeds, because you can't be food secure unless you're seed secure. Right. And that's another issue too with GMOs. Really they is. don't they don't propagate. You can't like most farmers. What they'll do is they'll keep save seeds and re replant. Replant, and exactly. you can't do that with GMOs because they're they're made to not do that. Correct? Is that well? The Terminator gene is actually not yet in any oh, commercial okay. product. Okay. However, okay. if you do save the seed, you're breaking your contract. Interesting. Okay. So you've got to have you've got to buy seed fresh every year. Okay. You know, and, and when you sign, when you grow GMOs, you have to sign a contract. This is a big point I get. It's like, oh, I'm growing this corn. It looks so perfect. I'm afraid it's GMO. It's just a hybrid, which I'm not nuts about either. But I, but a hybrid doesn't bother me like a GMO because once a GMO trait gets into your corn or your soybeans or whatever you're growing, right, you can't get it back out again. There's no way to get it back out. It's in there, and that's it. And so, and also, because it's in there, it's the product, it's now owned, literally owned by GMO. So, anyway, uh, though the big problem is you can't just replant this, you can't replant the corn because of the contract. Okay. Uh, whereas we believe that you should be able to grow whatever you grow and save the seeds from it and plant it again next year and keep doing that on down the line. Uh, Kissinger said, if you want to control the country, you control the oil, if you want to control the people, you control the food. Right? And right now, if you look at any graph, there's a great graph in uh, National Geographic from July of 2011, and it shows the dwindling diversity we have in our food supply. And this dwindling diversity really puts us into a precarious position. The less variety you have in each of the food crops you're depending on, the more chances you have of a pathogen wiping out the crop. This is the experiment they had in, in uh, Ireland in the 1840s, mm -hmm. right? It's yeah. the potato famine. Yeah. It was a disaster. You know, if we had if we had the same thing happen to corn today, your shelves would some of our shelves would be empty because all your meats being fed mm -hmm. corn, your right. chickens being fed corn. You've got corn in almost all the frozen products in some form or another. You've got corn in almost all the canned goods in some form or another. You take out the corn, the supermarket's really close to empty. And the varieties of corn we're growing are all very similar in terms of GMOs because they haven't GMO'd the entire corn genome. So as a consequence, they're all fairly similar. And as a consequence, they would be susceptible you have a pathogen come through twice out. And I just want to point out that we have had increases in corn, uh, the corn amount uh, grown per acre, you know, pounds per acre has gone up. But even the United States Department of Agriculture says that that's from conventional breeding, nothing to do with GMOs. So it's a very dangerous point we find ourselves at. And not only that, they're, they're legislating against people having seed libraries. Right. And, oh, interesting. Okay. But yeah, no, it's true. Okay. It's like we finally got to be big enough, and now, yeah. and now, if you actually look at most of the laws in any states on seed, the seed laws, mm -hmm. seed libraries don't conform because 
the seed law is written concerning commercial establishments. Mm -hmm. And what we are saying in seed libraries is that commercial establishments have failed us. And because they failed us, we have to create a seed library. And so then if you try to apply the same laws to us as you do a seed uh, institution or a, a company, mm -hmm. we end up with the same result. And we don't want that right. result. Right. So um, uh, I, I think that that's, that's got to change, too. And I, I see, you know, in California already, I see people moving to see that that changes. And I certainly uh, am not going to let the seed library loss too. You know, there's a reason to have it. And, and the reason is very, I mean, it's very important to have it. Because you've got to have seeds and you have food. For me, from my standpoint, I do feel that one of the reasons that companies are able to spread misinformation because a lot of us are not, we don't have our hands in the soil, we're not planting things, we're not connected to our food supply the way we used to be. I think it would be much harder to convince a population that's planting themselves that GMOs are wonderful than people who spend their days playing video games and then go to the supermarket and, and buy their food. Um, I think for me one of the big things that I got from my class with you was the plant spirit meditation that you did. Um, it really opened my eyes to seeing plants as living things and that we are all here together kind of thing. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, I would like to because, you know, in the, in the initial days of teaching that class, mm -hmm. I taught that class for about eight, nine, ten years, something like that. Um, in the beginnings, I only had the slightest, um, I had the intuition that that was occurring. But since then, so much research has come, has come out that support that and make it, you know, plants are intelligent beings. Uh, just because they don't walk around doesn't mean they're not intelligent. Uh, one of the recent studies I, I heard, I just, I absolutely love it. If you have a large forest, let's say it's hundreds of miles wide, on the east side, a beetle comes in and begins to attack the forest. Right? For some reason, right? on, this happens on Tuesday, right? By, by Later in the the entire forest knows. And you can tell it knows because they begin to manufacture chirpings, which to repel the beetle. Mm -hmm. And so you've got these trees hundreds of miles away manufacturing terpenes, even though there's no beetles around because the beetles are in the forest already. So there's communication from this tree to that tree. And and right at this moment we believe we believe it's based on the high fee of uh, fungus growing in the soil, because those hyphae can go thousands. How does the hyphae get the information from the first tree, run it down its mycelium out to the other tree, and then transfer it to the roots of that tree, so this tree goes, ah, terpenes! Right? So then, all right, so now the infestation really is taking over. Some of the trees will stop making terpenes. And so they're attracting the beetle to them to give themselves out for the rest of the forest. They aren't that smart. Or not that altruistic. Either. That's right, okay. All right, but that's smart, we're just not that altruistic. Good point. Very good point. Um, and there's just a lot of things we're finding out today about trees in particular that show how, how intelligent they really are. Um, and, uh, and it's something that, that as a, even as a child, I you know, had the idea. I love it. From the book, uh, The Secret Garden, 
Towards the end, the sick child says, it came up out of the ground and healed me. And I always, as a child, um, I had a very hard time getting along with people. I was just, mm-hmm. I was not good with people at all. Who would know now? <laughs> well, you know, I guess I have my moments still, but, you know, exactly. I was, um, but, you know, plants. I was always not home with the plants. And I swear to God that they talked to me as much as anything. Mm-hmm. You know. um, and, and even today, um, I pick, pick up a plant uh, that's not doing well. Uh, it's like I can, I can, I just know. And it's been really tough in teaching horticulture because when you just know, there's no mechanism to yeah. teach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what I mean, like what you gave to our class was an introduction into listening. I mean, that's really what you know, the big teaching is, I guess. Yeah, that really is, and I'm really grateful you got that. Um, and. You know, that's one of the things that really makes teaching so satisfying. It, um, I know that, um, gosh, it really gives me emotional. Um, I know that um, I've, I, uh, a man went out, uh, was on a business journey, and while on the business journey, he was informed that his and the child she was carrying had been taking the emergency and somehow he knew of, he got out of the office he was, he was working in and went out into the parking lot and found the largest tree he could find and sat down and used it. Mm-hmm. And, and in that space, uh, found enough um, peace to be able to continue to function. Because Going crazy, you know, so so frightened, and I was able to then turn to put put what he needed to do to get out of there and go back to his wife, and was able to go back, and everything was okay. But that moment where he needed the, he needed clarity, and he goes to the tree. Your wife, we're playing too many video games. We're not in tune. It was a, there, somebody was saying that uh, the average child by the time they're eight. Can recognize literally hundreds of logos, mm-hmm. but cannot cannot correctly them. Yes. Yeah. And I know uh, from the time that when teaching the body class that I felt fine if people would graduate from that class, and when they walked out to the car in the morning, realized that they had passed a bush, uh-huh. a thing, yeah. just that. Yeah. Um, and so, and we're trying to relate to cement like we used to relate to dirt. Yes. And that doesn't work. Yes. It doesn't have the same characteristics. And um, the soil, we don't get our hands dirty. We don't, we don't uh, walk into a garden and pick off a piece of rock and pop it in our mouth and eat it. And, 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 Ew, it's got a bug! Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's how you tell it's organic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's been another transition that I know I've gone through, um, is now when I see these, I think they're beautiful because I have these. You know, so like you start feeling like you're part of that whole web of living and working together, and all of a sudden those bugs, those animals that you, you know, are gross and dirty, 
our, our friends because you know what they do to the soil and, to, and pollinate and all those things. Um, so yeah, that I think is a really important piece that I think is missing. I notice it myself. I get really involved when I write. I'm, I'm on the computer. I do on the computer, and, and you go into this. Um, the last time I was out to Sedona recently, and it's like just getting away from everything. I become this other person a lot more when I'm away from all the electronics. And I'm not even a video game player. Or I like to get out of nature more. So imagine people who never do. Yeah. How their minds must work. You know, like if they really have no connection to nature or to how their food is made and all of that. I like the book that uh, we were. I used to recommend in that course. I, but I, I, yeah, well, I love that, that one, book. I love that book. There's also uh, The Lost Language of Plants. Most everybody hated that book. They <laughs> Maybe that would be a blocked it out. I don't know. They would come into class going, when does it get fun? When does it get happy? It's so sad. <laughs> and you know what? That book to me uh, was the silent spring of, pharma of pharmacology. Um, talking about talking about using the plants as medicine, and um, in the beginning, he goes through this long description of him and his, uh, playing at his father, the grandfather's. Um, probably um, he was probably a natural 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 path. Natural path. Yeah, and he has his, his pharmacy where he's got all these herbs. And, and Stephen uh, Boner describes himself playing with these herbs, mm -hmm. and this respect and the joy he got from that. And he introduces two of uh, two terms, biophilia and uh, bionosis. And what we lack today is biophilia, which means love of nature, love of the biology. Mm -hmm. and, then we, and because we lack that love of nature, we don't have and these two things combine, and we, the problem isn't just that, gosh, we don't have nature in our lives. The, the problem is that it's like a, a deficiency, like a vitamin deficiency, or if you will, a soul deficiency. And I think that if somehow we could get everybody more interested in a plant and the soil, because I think the soil is a big part of it too. Mm -hmm. that, that a lot of things that we see as diseases in our society could be healed. Um, and I've always thought that, uh, well, always, I've been around always, but for as long as I could formulate it, I've been, I have thought that. Um, and I certainly know in the times in my life when I got too distant from the garden, I just went back out. You know, I was not centered, I was not balanced, and, and I didn't understand it because I had been balanced a couple years ago. And then suddenly you get into a garden, it's like, oh, yeah. oh. Yeah. So, um, I really hope uh, that, that people do more uh, with, the, with, with the ground, I mean literally with the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, um, even if you can't grow a garden, you can walk barefoot in a botanical garden. Well, maybe with the warmer weather, but you know, you can do that. And, and um, go to a botanical garden and stop and look at the tree, and realize it's not just a tree. It is a certain kind of tree. It is a type of tree. 
Um, and you'll find some you, you speak to, that speak to you just naturally, uh, without, without really even trying. Um, you know, I've always, I grew up around Oaks and in the Midwest. I had a tremendous, a tremendous love for Oaks. But I will tell you this, that there's a, Chin there's a Chinese uh, tree at the uh, UCLA Botanical Garden. Um, I love this name. It's a uh, Don Redwood, okay. right? but the uh, scientific name for it is uh, Metasequoia Clipostrovoides. And it was so hard to learn when I finally learned it, I went around and just kept saying it, you know. Metasequoia Clipostrovoides. Metasequoia Clipostrovoides. Metasequoia Clipostrovoides. Um, it kind of rolled. It's got a weird name, feel to yeah. it when you say it. It's a um, deciduous conifer. He's got needles and it drops his needles. So it's like a halfway point. Conifers came before um, deciduous trees. And so it's like the it's like the halfway point to a deciduous tree. Okay. And but the tree itself, for some reason, um, you know, just boom. And I have such um, a, a wonderful feeling. And when I was at UCLA, I used to go out and sit under that tree in my writing. One day a week when I had lunch, I could go over there and sit down with that tree. And, and now I'm it's just telling you about it. I mean, I'm, gosh, I could go out and see that tree. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to do that. Yeah. So, uh, but we do live in a world that, you know, I grew up with this stuff because I was a kid in Kansas. And, you know, when I was 19, I decided it wasn't just looking cool to be a partner. Yeah. You know. Could, couldn't get a date if I was a gardener. <laughs> so, although now I think, you know, well, let's see, I can give you fresh vegetables and flowers. Okay, yeah. I'm okay every day. Okay, you know, so that works out pretty good. But in those days, so I took up uh, playing guitar and I was going to be a rock and roll star. Uh -huh. And uh, about 19, it was about uh, 31 years old, and you know, everything crashed. And we, I went out, I was applying for a job, and I was not getting a job. I wasn't being hired for anybody. I remember one day in, in 1985, B6, February, it was raining. And I had been to an interview that didn't go so well. You know, those interviews were about halfway through, and nobody's home. He was talking to a wall yeah. there, you know. And, uh, and I went to, I had gotten something for lunch, and I ate lunch in the parking lot of this community garden. And because it was a nice piece alone, and uh, it was raining. I had a suit on, I didn't have a green coat, didn't have an umbrella. And after I got done feeling just horrible, uh, after I got done eating, I just walked out into the garden in the rain. And those plants knew me, and I knew them. And that's when I came back to gardening as an adult in 1986. And uh, a couple. You know, um, a couple of years later, I was in a program learning the official names and all you know, that stuff. And a couple of years later, I was teaching it. And, and I don't want, I want to say it saved my life in a way that is very tangible to me. Because at the point where I found that garden, I was so depressed, um, I was suicidal. I was just over, I, my life had been ruined and I didn't see any reason at all. 
but the plants talked to me, and uh, and I found a new life. So now you know me in a new life. Um, and I can tell you this: that by being the plants, by growing the plants, um, I know what I'm talking about when I say there's a disconnect. And I know what I'm talking about when I say there's a reconnection. Um, it changed my life. That day, that day changed my life. And I will tell you that from that time forward to now, it's almost been same amount of time, mm-hmm. and my life has been progressively getting better, although I'm, you know, it's still light, right? Some days suck and some days don't, but uh, I'm very grateful for that day, I'm grateful for the chance to be here with the plants, and be able to talk to people about plants in a way that I hope they can understand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So the learning garden. The learning garden. Is it's that, right? It's, it's yeah. connecting younger people or people from different walks of life that don't have any, you know, in Los Angeles. Well, Los Angeles is more green than a lot of big cities. The people are working in it. Yeah. You hire somebody to do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got an acre, and uh, uh, about two-fifths of the acre is used by the high school students. Mm-hmm. We have classes, field trips from many different classes. I thought uh, a preschool class, get this, oh. I taught a, pre- a preschool class how to propagate roses. That's it. Now I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, they asked, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those preschoolers where you know, the, uh, the students the curriculum, mm-hmm. and uh, their room was called the Rose Room, oh. and they knew how to make new roses. Yeah, makes so sense. we had them out here, and they, we, we had a class on, on, on roses. Um, we've had, uh, there used to be a teacher over at the local uh, grade school, mm-hmm. And she would bring her classes over in spring. We'd do a tour of the garden, and then they'd plant pumpkin seeds. Okay. And then through the miracle of summer vacation, mm-hmm. when they came back in fall, they could pick the pumpkins for Halloween mm-hmm. or whatever. And uh, so we've had that. We've had, and it's amazing to me how much children can absorb about plants. Excuse me. Um, we have adults that come out with UCLA Extension and get them started in growing. Um, and I teach another class for adults. I teach several classes for adults. And the idea is, is getting your hands dirty, getting mm-hmm. down the knees, you can get dirt on the knees, mm-hmm. dirt on the fingernails. And, uh, but more than that, when I teach a class on gardening for UCLA Extension, we just finished up in St. Paul. It's out here on Sunday afternoon from 1 to 5. It's a long time to be sitting around not eating. Yes. Right? So, and in the beginning, um, I decided they needed to keep warm. It's out here. And most facilities are outside. And you can tell right now this isn't exactly the warmest place you've been. No. no. So, uh, I would cook for them with the idea that they, if they had some hot soup, mm-hmm. they would be feeling so we do that. And what this has transpired into is that now I choose ingredients that are seasonal from mm-hmm. the garden, mm-hmm. right? And we do something with those things that they're growing. Yes. And that's turned into being a really big part of, this, of the program. So you come out, you have your class, and you're out there planting chart, and I serve you something with chart in it. Mm-hmm. Works out really well. So, and besides that, it really improves my, uh, um, what do they call it, my... Student ratings. Yes, I'm sure it does. Like, he fed us! <laughs> he fed us a lot! <laughs>
But that isn't the reason. That, you know, it makes sense because I couldn't. You know, we could take a break at three o'clock and like, okay, go get some tea. Yeah. You know, and then drive off to McDonald's. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, no, that's worked out really well. Well, I was going to ask you, um, since you also are a pack leader, maybe, <laughs> a member, I don't know who the pack yeah, leader is. I, yeah, sometimes. Um, sometimes it kind of changes. Um, what, how is your most different in relationship with plants, or is there a similarity? Or? Um, I think perhaps that um, in much the same way, uh, I really tend to be a live and not live. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't try to boss him around. You know, he knows what I like, he knows what I don't like. And sometimes he goes, okay, I'll go along and give it. And the other times it's like, screw you, I'm doing it my way. Yeah. And, I, you know, I allow that to be. Um, and I think, I, I honestly think I got that from plants, because I know in my younger days, my pets had to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's what they tell you. You're yeah. supposed to be the pack leader. Yeah. Well, I still am the pack leader, but, you know, if we have an argument, sometimes I'll win, sometimes he'll win. I don't, I, you know, I don't feel very particularly uh, involved with that. I'm okay. not ego involved with okay. asserting myself over okay. my pet. Okay. <laughs> or my plants, you know, yeah, you, yeah. you like them to do certain things, but if they don't, they don't. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, on, this is respect for life, period. It's just respect for life. And uh, which is one, another reason that I don't like GMOs because there's no respect for life. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a commodity. Yes. It's a patent. And how do you patent life? Give me a break. I don't understand that. Mm. So, um, no, I think my time with plants has, has taught me a lot, uh, a lot more patience. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and to be less judgmental. Just because it, you know, um, like I'm talking to my students growing food. The world would have you believe that beets have to be like this, you know, every ground. Yes. You have to grow around beet. And so, what they tell you in the book is if you have two plants that are too close together, mm -hmm. you have to throw one away. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. But what I've come to see, if you have a beet and it's flat on one side, mm -hmm. it really tastes quite, a, quite the same as one that's round all the way around. Yes. So, if you have two growing together and you end up with one flat on each side, mm -hmm. they're still quite edible. Yes. So, um, we do thinning when it's necessary, when you have like three or four all together, that is a bad thing, because mm -hmm. then you have, you know, you're not going to have good production. But if two are up against each other, forget it. There's no reason, you know, and, and if, the, if the leaf has got a hole in it, it doesn't mean it's bad. Yes. Right? If the cabbage has, you know, got a hole in it, it isn't a bad leaf. You can eat that. So, and that's been a, it's been a teaching experience and a learning experience for me, because I think I just realized one day that if I, if my grandfather and I walked in, my grandfather could come back from the dead and, mm -hmm. and walk with me into Ralph's, yeah. right, or any grocery store. Sorry, Ralph's, I don't mean to pick on you, but any grocery store and look at the produce, you go, wow, what's wrong with this? Mm -hmm. Because it's too perfect. And so now you've got now when we go to a farmer's market and we have an organic gardener, mm -hmm. he still has to have it perfect yes. because everybody wants it perfect. Yes. So he's out there working triple time. Mm -hmm trying to keep all the insects off his plants, somehow, you know, and it's not good, it's not healthy. So, um, I know that I don't like the idea of having organic produce, 
that is the same as chemical produce, but they've just used a uh, different pesticide. Yes. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't like that plant. I would rather have the, the, the leaf with a bite out of it. Right. I really would. I really, really would. The uh, pesticides are safer to humans mm -hmm. because once it's dried, it's no longer toxic. Mm -hmm. But when it's moist, it is fatal to, to all insects. So actually, you probably end up killing more beneficial insects with organic pesticides than you do with chemical pesticides. So they're both wrong. And it goes back again that we're having this mentality that we have to fight. It doesn't work. Right. Well, I mean, we have that with the medicine, the same thing. Oh, yeah. With medicine, it's right. like you have to go to war with whatever's happening in your body um, instead of trying to balance it out and finding out. Because it takes more work. Mm. And we don't like to work. I think mean, that's part of the problem. Mm. For you to try to work things out and, mm. and get harmonious, it takes a lot of thinking and going back and forth. Whereas annihilation is just like, Boom! It's easy, yeah. right? Boom is good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it works that well. So, how do you, what do you think about things like neem oil? Things like, like what, how do you keep pests off of your, your plants? It's a long term process, it isn't immediate. The first thing we try to do here is to have something in bloom all through the growing season. Okay. Our growing season is 365 days, so we have in bloom 365 days. Uh, that's because a lot of beneficial insects at some stages of their life are nectar feeders. So this, what you're right about is, it is it, you have to think about what you're doing way ahead mm -hmm. before you start doing it. Secondly, so we have all, so we stop using pesticides. Now, one of the things I think that happens with pesticides is you have aphids on your plant. You see the aphids, so, oh my god, I got a spray. What you didn't see was there were la eggs laid by ladybugs around those aphids that are going to hatch out and eat the aphids in three or four days. Yes. But you rush out, you spray the plant, and that kills the ladybug eggs. Yeah. All right, so now that you, you kill the ladybug eggs, the aphids will come back. They have no competition, mm -hmm. so they'll come back again, which means you have to spray again. Yeah. So spraying one five times, mm -hmm. right? You just have to get used to that. Every time you spray, you've admitted you're stupid, and, right, you can't figure this out, and so you've admitted you can't figure it out, and you're going to have to spray again. Okay. That's what you've done. That's all you've done. Okay. So, we stopped spraying, and now we get more beneficials. Now, when we go out to our garden in the daytime, you walk through there, we have ten times more insects in our garden than anybody who sprays anything has in their garden. And, and most of those insects are beneficial. Yes. Um, then... We also provide some source of water for the beneficials, so the beneficials have a way uh, to, to rehydrate because they, they need water too. So now we have all those things in place. Now that we have all those things in place, we then decide how much damage can we allow on the plant before we'll spray. Okay. Alright? The damage I will allow, I'll allow the plant to die. Okay. I have a zero tolerance for spray. Okay. And I've been here for 12 years, ready to be 13. We have lost two crops to insects. One of them was my own damn fault because I put the melons in too dark of an area. Okay. Right? And they, they just they were a constant problem. Mm -hmm. We couldn't make it right. And two, uh, we planted <laughs> this was kind of a bad thing. We planted all these um, uh, members of the cabbage family and the cabbage moth laid their eggs and we got wiped out for I don't know how many hundreds of plants that were you know, broccoli. 
uh, cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, kale. I think I'm missing one, but oh, no, I said cauliflower. So uh, all those got wiped out. What we did, we simply replanted and then put them under a uh, cloth. Uh, it's called a, a row cover. And the light and the water could get through, right? but the insects could not get through. Okay. And so once they're up to size, then you can have a cabbage uh, moth uh, larva on the plant, mm -hmm. munching away, mm -hmm. and you can't kill the plant. When they're little babies, you know, yes. two munches and they're gone. Yeah. So, um, and so I, I fault myself on both those because mm -hmm. one, I should have planted it in, in a better place, and mm -hmm. two, I could have realized that we had the little white moths flying about yeah. and they were going to be a problem. Right. But I just thought, you know, hey, I'll just fly right by here. Right. They won't notice my my They did. So, um, I am not against killing insects. Mm -hmm. Let's don't think of me as a Pollyanny, like, okay, oh, okay. we're going to kill all insects. No, okay. I'll kill them. Is, is there an insect that you particularly don't like, that you don't get along with? Or? Well, there's a lot of them I don't get along with, okay. uh, but certainly the cabbage uh, moth, cabbage loopers. Is it's not going to No, okay. no. Um, and in fact, in this infestation, you know, we, we went out there with the students, a group of high school students, and, and this one girl found a, a fairly good size. Yeah. You know, and she t takes and she says, you're not going to kill it. I'm not going <laughs> to kill it. And so you don't argue with them because yeah. it's high school students. Yeah. You're arguing, and that would be like, you know, I know when I was a high school student, no sense arguing to yeah. me. So don't argue with her. And we continue the lecture, walking around looking at different plants in the garden. And at one point, I'm standing next to her, and she's got this worm sitting like mm -hmm. that. And I go, <laughs> oh my God. traumatizing high school students. That's right. Yeah. And uh, well, what really traumatized? It was big enough to have green block go all over her, and it was kind of a mess. And uh, and and but. No, I'm not against killing insects. It's just I'm not I'm not into killing other things other than your well, target. Right. Well, because like if you, like I have people try to poison coyotes, but then mm -hmm. pets get into the poison. Like you can't when you poison something, you, it's not specific. Exactly. So you're fine with like if, if you could shoot them or something. You'd yeah. Be okay with it. <laughs> yeah. If I could take them out, into, if I could take insects out individually and know that I only got that insect, yes, yes, I'd be fine. Okay. But uh, our sprays are just not effective. With um, aphids, if we if we had an infestation, let's just try to theorize this, and we have an infestation on a plant that's extremely valuable. Yes. I have no idea what that could look like. Okay. But let's say we had that, I would take a hose and wash them off. That's where for me. I, I have a, 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 a how do you say English acerola tree, mm -hmm. and it's the, the little acerola, the little like a cherry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and so they particularly love this is my that tree. And I just went around and hosed it down every week. No problem. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. So most of the aphids that you wash off will not return to the tree mm -hmm. because when they start to feed, they drop their li their leaves, they drop their wings, mm -hmm. and so they're really kind of stuck with that tree. Mm -hmm. So once you wash them off, they're down there. They will probably not get back in the tree mm -hmm. unless you have ants. And the uh, ants yeah, will yeah, pick, yeah. Will pick yeah. them up and put them back on the tree themselves. That's a they, big problem here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. We, it's like living on an anvil. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But even with that, I've got uh, pretty good control of most aphids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there is a bagruto bug that has been infesting people around here, and, and my neighbors are scared to death of it. Mm -hmm. I've seen a couple, but they haven't been a problem for me. Mm -hmm. Knock on wood, right? 
Well, it's, it's another thing too that I was thinking, like, I know for people to keep bugs off of us is we make our bodies healthier, immune system healthier. So that's probably a similar thing with plants, right? If you make the soil richer and right. plants are happier, right? That's but watch that richer stuff because what we do in commercial agriculture, you put down lots of nitrogen, a lot of like really uh, fast and uh, soft growth okay. from the nitrogen. I actually think that insects probably could, uh, attack a plant as nature's way of getting rid of that plant's gene, get that plant out of the gene pool uh, because it's it's not healthy for some reason. Uh, but also, see, this is the way we do it here. Agriculture drives me crazy because we add nitrogen to the soil. So the plant grows long and lean and succulent. And the insects come in and we go, oh my god, it's got insects. And then we go spray the insects. Whereas if we cut out all, those, on the, on the, all that nitrogen to begin with, if we simply had good soil, yes. the plants wouldn't grow as lush, they wouldn't grow weak, they would grow with all the defenses that they're supposed to have. And so you wouldn't get as many insects. So you don't have to spend the money on the fertilizer and you don't have to spend the. This is People say, nobody's going to buy my book because in my book I say, don't buy anything. Right, oh, I love <laughs> you know? that. So do you have a book right now? I've got a book. It's not quite finished. Okay. Well, it's, not, it's called Growing Food in Southern California. Oh, I'm excited about that. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, but yeah, I, they say nobody's going to want to carry it. Don't buy anything. Yes, exactly. Right? Exactly. So, <laughs> so, so what are your tips then for having good soil? Good soil. Compost. Mulch. Mulch, 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 mulch. Okay. If you mulch uh, all the time. You can um, you end up helping you cover the soil, prevent loss of water, which is very important. You prevent the um, evapor evaporation of water from the soil, uh, and the critters in the soil that feed on that mulch, and and they multiply, and that's what gives you true fertility. There's a bed out there in the garden. If it wasn't all wet, you could put your arm into it up to here. Right? It's never been spaded. Mm -hmm. I have never dug that at all. It's the action of the worms coming up from below, mm -hmm. getting the compost and going back down. Mm -hmm. And they come up and they go back down and they're drilling that ground always. And so they dig that ground much more effectively than I ever could. Mm -hmm. And my back stays happy uh -huh. and peaceful, you know. You know, and I yeah. work. You know? Yeah, I want to do that. Work, yeah. Okay. So that's what we do. We keep putting down uh, this mulch. And um, and protect the soil and allow the critters in the soil to do the work for us. Okay. And how about trees? Like, do you have fruit trees or things like that? Compost on those. Mulch, okay. mulch them. Okay. Mulch them. Um, you know, but also treat the tree with respect. Mm -hmm. um, when I go to prune my trees, and you do an annual pruning for most fruit trees, and honestly, as I approach the tree, I will ask the tree kind of silently, what shape do you want to be? Mm -hmm. What do you need? And, and and so do a few cuts back in the tree, you know, and do this thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. um, not, you know, the idea of five guys climbing a tree with chainsaws just abhors me. Yes. That's just insane. Yeah. But just to talk, come back, go do some more work, come back, and do it reflectively. And, and you know, if we could each live our lives um, soulfully, um, as though we are a spirit among other spirits, and with that respect of other spirits, we, we would probably change a lot of our um, our angst mm -hmm. and our pain. Yeah. Well, we get along with other people better if we treated them that way. Yeah, I, I've gotten better at treating people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not banished off to the garden. 
Get away from us. So, no, but I do. Um, I do think that, that the plants heal me, and I, think, and I do think that that's what can heal our society. More plants. More interactions with plants. So it's not so much that we have to go back and using the herbs as medicine internally. It's almost like they have even more value to us spiritually and emotionally and mentally just by being around them. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I, I, I don't want to discount using them medicinally, but I do want to, I do think that we would have much more wholeness in our lives if we had uh, a proper grounding of plants. I keep using that word grounding, and I do mean that specifically that way. Um, uh, I think that that disconnect is is probably the root of a lot of our social uh, misconstruction, misconstructs, constructs. Um, the, I think once you're dealing with nature, you're really, if you're a gardener, you know that nature is abundant. You know, when you plant this little itty bitty seed, right? you're going to get a plant or you're going to get a, a bunch of seeds from that plant. I mean, Think of a sunflower seed. One sunflower seed equals how many hundreds of sunflowers? Sunflower seeds in the sunflower. And um, I think once you get used to that sort of process, the idea of being greedy mm-hmm. is kind of stupid. Yeah. You know, it's like nature is willing to share with me, I can share with you. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, you know, there's a, our society just doesn't um, let go of the rush of the speed um, or the, the titillation of, of, of products. And yet, if you get down to it, every one of us is perfect in our own right. Um, and that we have to make ourselves or pretzel ourselves into something else is, is absurd. So that's what our society is based upon, is that... Exactly. That, Don't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't buy that either! <laughs> I can see why you're a danger to a lot of people. I know. Just, you know, uh, I taught soils and fertilizers, and um, I loved it. I went When I was teaching soils and fertilizers, I went back, I found this book from 1939, I think it is. It is the uh, United States Department of Agriculture um, uh, yearbook. And every year back then, they published one big book, which is all the known science that they had about some aspect of raising food. And so this is called Soils and Men. It's okay. a big, thick book. Okay. All right. I got that book, and I was amazed to find in that book, there are uh, there's a section uh, about that thick mm-hmm. on how... If you use too much fertilizer or even too much animal manure, you destroy the critters in the soil that are the basis of, nutri- of a nutritive soil. You destroy the ability of the soil to produce the nutrients for your plants. Of course, the rest of this book is how to apply chemical fertilizers. Right? <laughs> but the idea that you need to do something costly to, to make food is is asinine. You know, and the way we do food, we keep getting the farms larger and larger and larger, but the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, 
has proven that it's going to be the small, independent, indigenous farmer that feeds the world. It is not going to be big ag. It never has been, it never will be. You know, when you look at your food on the shelves, you don't get any food on the shelves in the grocery store that is just food. Yeah. You get a list of chemicals and a list of things like that. Right. That's how they do it. Yeah. That will work. You take out all those chemicals and it doesn't work. Yes. So, if that's, if you like the idea of eating words, eating food from words you don't can't pronounce yeah. or spell, then you can go ahead and do that. But Michael Pollan and a lot of people say, if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it. Right. The problem is a lot of us are addicted to those words well, that we can't pronounce. Like I, I've experienced that myself, okay. and I have experienced that with people in my life and patients that you know you try to get them to you know just, you know, just eat organic, and mm -hmm. they have these cravings like they need to eat fast food and all this stuff. And was, you know that it's an addiction. Diet coke is the hardest thing that I've seen my patients get off. Of. Really, I've had people get off smoking get up all these other things and then they have the hardest time with diet coke. So there's something going on there with those unpronounceable words I think that are keeping us locked in. I think you really have a point there. Um, I know um, I, I'm very, very fortunate that I was never in that diet stuff because uh -huh. I am a heavy drinker. Uh -huh. You know, I big bottle of water. Uh -huh. and, and chow, and I'm going down on that always, you know. Just um, I've, uh, and bubble water. Always like my bubbles. Mm -hmm. bubble thing. But um, I'm really grateful that I didn't. I mean, I, I did uh, for a period go off into Coke mm -hmm. and then worry about my teeth, so the Diet Coke. Uh -huh. you know, and, and just for some reason, I just couldn't. It just didn't. It didn't hit my addictive qualities. I, you know, I don't know how I missed that one. You know, well, I got everything else. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. Um, very grateful for that. I don't. Um, you're right. We're fed these. We're not only fed these addictive, uh, unpronounceable things. We're also. Um, uh, Sought, it's it's portrayed as as a as a stylish life, yes. as a as a good life, smiley life, yes. you know, that sort of thing. And um, and people, well, we are brought up because we have to we have to buy things. Mm -hmm. We are brought up brought up to think we need things that we are imperfect, that we need to be weller, we need to be cool with the drink, we need to have the right makeup, we got to have the right. Uh, lipstick or the right clothes, the right hair, all these things. We had to have the right color of hair. Yeah. You know, and um, I'm very grateful that, first of all, uh, when I, um, the last, I guess about, um, <clears throat> probably over 20 years, I have not owned a working TV. Wow. Uh, yeah. The only I actually I <laughs> but maybe unworking TVs. An unworking, no, I have an unworking TV. Um, it's a TV hooked up to a VCR. Okay. Right. Uh, because I have a tape uh -huh. on photosynthesis. <laughs> okay. And I'm a little weak on the chemistry, mm -hmm. so every time I have to teach photosynthesis, mm -hmm. I pop this tape out and review okay. it so okay. I don't get it wrong. Okay. Right. I can almost. If I really thought about it, I could probably recite most of the lines of this movie I've seen it so many times. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I watch on TV. Okay. 
Um, so, um, and I'm really grateful for that because I think that, that that has, first of all, by not falling in, one of the things about TV, because I am an addictive type of personality, uh -huh. but I could be talking to you, you're a very beautiful woman, and if there was a TV on over there, I'd be going, and it draws you in, it's like, yeah. And I can't yeah. stand that. It's like, why, why would I be looking at that thing when I could be, you know, conversing with you? Mm -hmm. So, that's the reason I got rid of it. Mm -hmm. I just can't stand to be that kind of person. Yeah. And I have to be very careful with the computer, because I can do the same thing with that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It suck right back absolutely. in. Uh, and the problem is, though, now, like, when I go to write, which is a very internal process, exactly. you're doing it on the computer, it has that same... You're still connected. Yeah, you're connected to that computer. And so, yeah, that's been an issue for, for me as well. I uh, was to sit down and write on the computer um, before I opened my browser. I'm sorry, before I opened the process, the word processor, I opened the browser. Uh -huh. And I'm going to put up uh, Wikipedia, mm -hmm. a dictionary, right? And then maybe a couple pages on what I'm writing about so I can have reference material. Mm -hmm. And then I opened the, the uh, word processor. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, it's integrated to that. The one thing you don't open is Facebook. <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> you no, open Facebook or The problem or is when you have it like leaked in, you have a mess yet. Yeah, it's trouble. true. You get in trouble. It's very true. Um, I uh, just was considering this this morning, and I want to um, step away from the computer a little bit more, spend more time with longhand, writing mm -hmm. longhand. Yeah. And, uh, and and I also, um, and the dog is, don't tell him, <laughs> but I want to take him on more walks because I want to utilize those walks for a more mm -hmm. approach to my writing. Yeah. Um, you know, I used to write a lot of poetry and then I got all better and don't have all that angst. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> all that emotion you have to get out. Well, I know, like, like for example, when, when I take notes, I have to write it longhand. Like, I can't type it. There's something, there's a process that happens. So I'm sure it's the same process when you're writing. I there totally must be much more of a connection if you write longhand than if you're typing. I totally agree. If but I it's have, not as efficient. It's not nearly as efficient. And especially if you read my writing. <laughs> You know, what is it? The students started saying that uh, my handwriting was why God gave us printers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes I have trouble reading it. Yeah. But the idea there is, is still the same because somehow there, you're right. There's something that flows from our synapses down through our arm mm -hmm. onto the page, yeah. and uh, somehow the computer writing just doesn't doesn't duplicate that. So when I get into a mess or a problem or sadness or anything like that, I will I will sit down and write about it. Mm -hmm with longhand uh -huh. and, and do it very, very uh, specifically that way. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's a constant battle uh, to um, live a life that is, is reflective of the depth of our being and the depth of the beings around us. To um, walk down a city street, approximating the same awe one would express in a cathedral. Because unless you're in the really um, difficult parts of town, the really compromised parts of the city, you have trees there. They're not always the best trees, believe me. Uh, but still there are trees there, and there are, when I say best trees, uh, I'm 
is being subjected. Uh, but for instance, we have Venice Boulevard behind us, and they've got a tree out there. The main reason it's planted is because the city can hire anybody mm -hmm. with a saw and cut it to schmitterings and right. it'll still grow back. Right. And that's a great claim for uh, the ficus bench in my life. Oh, I, I, know, I remember from class that you're a big fan of ficus trees. Yes, ficus pucus. One of my friends calls it photanical Latin. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I don't care at all for ficus trees. They can be cut to schmitterings. <laughs> okay. And their roots yeah. are invasive and they yeah. want a lot of water. We don't have a lot of water, so why yes. do we plant them? Yes. Why do we plant them in abundance? Yeah, they, right. all of us are saying it's all yeah. like ubiquitous. Yeah. Ubiquitous is still a swear word. If it's ubiquitous, it's wrong. Something's wrong with it. Um, so, but this big street, these trees, and they'll never get to be big enough for this street. This street is a huge bowl going so east direction plus turn lanes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, they should have a huge tree out there on either side of this, and I, I can't understand why they don't have uh, like oak trees. Mm -hmm. And I think they should have oak trees anyway, because oaks you can eat, you can eat acorns. Mm -hmm. You may not like them. I don't think anyone thinks about that. I mean, going back to the disconnection with nature, we don't think about... This is our food. Yeah, we don't, or, or, or like any, yeah, like you said, the, what's the purpose of the street? It's something that can, they can hack to death and mm -hmm. it'll still come back. Like, that's the, the ideal yeah. for the tree. So they, they're not thinking about no. you know, whether how much water it's going to take. All these other factors are not really playing no. in. There's a tree down this street here, it's a carob tree, right? You can go out there and pick up other carobs, mm -hmm. carobs mm -hmm. right? And you can make, you can use them to make a, a, a food that tastes like chocolate, mm -hmm. right? And it's probably more nutritious for you than chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, and acorns, you have to be soaked, it's true, it's a little bit of a pain. Mm -hmm. But there's even some speculation that one time, that's why uh, humans began to lead an agrarian lifestyle, is because they could go to the oak trees around pick all the acorns and have enough food already stored from one afternoon of picking, mm -hmm. they didn't have to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So now they have the time to experiment with growing wheat, mm -hmm. barley, that sort of thing, and that's how they become uh, ag uh, agrarians. Mm -hmm. They become the agricultural revolution. Um, but what I'm thinking about is in the future, if there is climate change, and I think there is, right? You're going to need plants to produce food. Mm -hmm. And it may not be the food you like to eat the most. Right, just so they can survive what you did. Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. You want to be able to survive it. And, and uh, that's why I'm very fond of the mesquite. Mm -hmm. I'm growing uh, one variety of mesquite right now. And mm -hmm. I've got several, i got seeds right here uh -huh. for more varieties. Okay. And we're going to keep growing them out and finding out what ones will grow here in Southern California and produce food in Southern California. Well, not to add another controversial issue, but what, what is your feeling? <laughs> on climate change, then, so you believe there is climate change? Yes, I, I do believe there's climate change. And you believe that it's man-influenced? Mm -hmm. I do. I think that science shows us that. I think it's, it's, it's not refutable uh, at this point. It is definitely the way of the world. Uh, we are experiencing changes in, um, and I, you know, you start out with the global warming term. Making global warming through people yeah. completely off uh, because it's not just getting warm, it's, it's fluctuations that we didn't have before. The storms are more violent, the storms are going to continue to get more violent. Right? When we say, uh, well, New Orleans shouldn't be there because they got flooded, well, I think you're going to find flooding in Los Angeles, you're going to find flooding everywhere, earthquakes. You know, we're going to have a couple of serious earthquakes 
that it's going to be very difficult for the federal government to fund throughout their fighting wars and things like that. You know, one of the biggest polluters in, in, the, in, in civilization is, is, is war, right. armies. Yeah. Right. So. Especially how we do it now with all the chemicals and. Precisely. Yeah. You know, and those chemicals that they use for war mm-hmm. was what created the American fertilizer and the American insecticide industries after World War II. I love that point from Vatnashiva because she talks about how they took the the, uh, the the factories that were manufacturing poison gas and that became the herbicides and the pesticide industry and the people that were producing bombs, right? Things that go bang, blow up. That's the nitrogen factories, right? And that's why you have uh, Timothy McVeigh was his name that blew up the uh, Oklahoma's building using a truck of fertilizer. Because the fertilizer and it's the same concept. So it really is a direct connection with war. It is people a of war and nature. It's the same. It really is, really literal, not just figurative. Yeah, exactly. And you are, you, and when I say you are declaring war on nature, that's exactly what it is. It is, it is. It goes back to thinking that we are different from nature. That we are not nature. There's us, and then there's nature. And guess what? There's not. Yeah. It's nature. It's interesting how people get really emotional about that. Like throughout history, you've had people get really their egos get very uh, riled up when you when we're not special yeah, anymore. Yeah, There's we, this need of being special that it yeah. gets in the way of that. And I, I, but I, and that's the disconnect I think when you you uh, that we experience as humans because uh, as a the thinking part. Yeah. My dog thinks. Yeah. Oh, I know. He I may not be a philosopher, but yeah. he thinks. Oh, I've had dogs manipulate the heck out of me, so I know that yeah. they're they're thinking absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And 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 as we talked earlier, the tree thinks too. Yeah. So, um, but the process is not is not the same, and so therefore you, we can we can say well they don't they don't you know they don't have newspapers yeah. you know have TV stations. I think they're probably better off because <laughs> they don't have newspapers or TV stations. But, that that's an arguable point. Um, the Indians of uh, North America, the West America, have a cosmology, and in the cosmology, about the animals getting pissed off the humans. Mm-hmm. The humans were just you know using them for food, mm-hmm. you know, and they weren't really respecting the animals. And so the animals got together and said, no, we're just going to take out these humans. We're just going to have them for lunch. Mm-hmm. So There's a lot more of us than there are of them. We can do this. Mm-hmm. Right? So they got ready to do that. But uh, one of the animals, I think probably an owl, or maybe that's just my overlay of it, mm-hmm. uh, says, wait, we have to go ask the old ones what they think. And so the animals went off and they had to talk to the plants. Mm-hmm. The plants were the old ones. I love that because, you know, if we look at evolution, the plants are the were plants long before there were any kind of, uh, of a animal critter. So, they presuppose our, our history of evolution, right, from a, in a fable. And they ask the old ones, and the old ones, the plants say, you know, we're here to teach the humans. We have to put up with them. Basically, I've paraphrased that. <laughs> yeah. But, Literally. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, the, you know, and so the, so the animals didn't kill us off. Yeah. But there is so much we can learn from the animals and learn from the plants if we just open ourselves up to it. Yeah.
um, and get off of our hubris. You know, what will kill us is our hubris. We're always, you know, we're, we're the best, we're the smartest, we're the... Oh, get off your horse, you know? There's so much more to learn, there's so much more to life than what we can think. Words that you want to share with people. Well, I certainly enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed this process. Um, I don't. I don't know. Um, I. I hope that I don't come across as being more than a humble seeker of, of, um, of nature. You know, there's, um, there's a lot I don't think we understand. Um, I think when we go around and, and we build unsinkable boats that sink on our maiden voyage, mm -hmm. we can't be too proud of our record. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that we have to, I think humans um, are better off if they can look at a plant or an animal as an equal. And I also think that hubris applies to being able to switch genes in and out of plants and create new life. I don't think that's I don't think it's valid. Um, I think we have a lot to learn, a lot more to learn. Um, you know, we're going to go down the road 10 years our idea of inheritance, you know, gen genetic modification theory is completely wrong. That's going to happen. Don't want to do it. Uh, I think the thing to do is to take take nature as nature and try to bring it into our lives as much as possible in whatever way we can. We have a fountain back here with water running. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a part of it. Um, whether you're a water sign or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but having nature a part of your life and trying to live um, a little bit on a lower, maybe frequency, you know, not vibrating yourself right out the window all the time. Um, I know it's, it's worked wonders for me, and um, although I'm a guru. I don't know if I'm a guru. I've, I've met too yeah. many of them. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. That's my take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I don't want to be a guru. I just, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I want to be a gardener. I want to be a gardener who's, who's watched nature do its thing for a while. That's all. Thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate Thank that. You. That was awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Welcome to the Leah Andrews Show. I'm here with David King, author, lecturer, and activist. He is the garden master of the Learning Garden and the founding chair of the Los Angeles library and he is also my botany professor when I was in acupuncture school so he's a very special person to me um, welcome to our show I'm so happy that you